Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today we are, you know, today's the first day that I previewed what we were going to talk about on the podcast in an editor's blog post. And what I what I previewed was that we were going to talk about the For the People Act, uh, S1 or H1, S1, all these different, um, you know, all these different code words and everything. And, th- and this in some ways captures some of the problem with with the public messaging with the discussion with the process of legis- of trying to pass this legislation that unlike cases where a legislative push has one resonance slogan or something like that here we have a bunch of jargon and gobbledygook and stuff like that and that is something that is not uncommon when Democrats are legislating, and and uh, there are a number of reasons for that. But for the moment, let's talk about actually what happened. What happened was that Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, waited basically until the last minute to announce that he was voting yes for what was, in essence, his own compromise version of the bill. It wasn't technically that. Technically, they were starting with the original bill, but there was an, a, an agreement that they were going to do amendments that were going to you know, make it his version of the bill. So he announces you know, to great fanfare that he's going to vote for his own bill or, or the compromise version that he, um, that he signed off on. And then predictably, after they secure this 50th vote, the Republicans, the 50 Republicans in the Senate, refused to vote to allow a a debate to begin on the bill uh or um you know let alone to actually vote on the bill which is to say the bill went nowhere which is what we expected there was kind of a question whether you'd have you know 49 democrats supporting it in which case you're 11 votes short of being able to hold a vote uh but manchin threw in his support so then you're 50 votes short of being able to have, a, I'm sorry, 10 votes short of being able to have a vote. Now, you know, one of the things, one of the most important things in politics is you can never allow yourself to seem ridiculous. That's the most damaging thing. You can be corrupt, you can be stupid, you can, you can, all sorts of things, but ridiculous is poisonous. And uh, through reasons which it is, you know, it is really not the fault of 48 or 49 of the Democrats up there. It's, it's, and yet that is the, that is the, that is the result. That is the visual. So afterwards, Basically, every Democrat up there put out a statement that said some version of, you know, this is not the this is not the end of this. This is just the beginning. I think uh, Chuck Schumer put out a statement saying something like, you know, this isn't the this isn't the finish line. This is the starting gun. Now, <laughs> is that the case? Because it sure seems like that is that was the finish line, and the Democrats lost. Because we have a certain we have a certain number of fixed fixed variables here. One variable is that it is theoretically possible that Democrats may get a couple of Republicans to allow them to have a vote, but they're not going to get ten Republicans. That is absolutely not going to happen. And Joe Manchin has seemed to make pretty clear that he will not support not only getting rid of the filibuster, but even any changes to the filibuster rules, which would open up a little looseness about whether you can do this with 50 votes under some version of something or other. So I don't know if this is just, well, let me take that back. This certainly seems like it's just kind of happy talk because Democrats are bummed and, and, and 
and no, none of them want to say, oh, well, well, I guess that's not going to happen because we are we are stymied behind this obstacle that is that exists only at the sufferance of one or two members of our of our caucus, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, of whom a preening ridiculous buffoon. We won't even we won't even talk about her. We'll focus on Joe Manchin for reasons which we'll discuss later. And yet and yet I have I've I've spoken to some people who are really pretty central to this, right? Not just random people or pundits or all that kind of stuff. People who really, really, really should know what's going on here. And they definitely don't say, oh, Josh, we got this covered. We got it. You know, we got the backroom agreement. No, nothing like that. But they don't think this is over. And the only thing that could make it not over is if Manchin is not really completely set about the filibuster. And when I say that, that seems like hope against hope. You know, how many times do you run up against that fucking football before you before you say, I'm not going to run up against that football anymore? Even though in this case, it's like Joe Manchin's football. I don't even know whose football it is. <laughs> so it's really hard to know what is happening here, to me at least. And, 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 and probably a good part of that is that you don't want to know what's happening here. Because there seems like a lot of evidence, a lot of, a lot of cards on the table to tell you what's happening here. And, and you know, the one thing, you know, there was this, uh, there was a call released a few days ago with Joe Manchin. It was like a donor call or something like that that got leaked to The Intercept. And what was focused on was that Manchin made this comment that, uh, God, is, is it Roy Blunt? I can't, basically seeming to say to some funders who Manchin thought, probably rightly, are the kind of people who are going to be employing retiring Republican senators in the future to kind of say, hey, you know, if you can put in a word that it might be helpful if, this, if these people weren't quite so recalcitrant, that would be helpful. Well, there's all sorts, you know, that seems a little, you know, that's one interpretation of what he was saying. I think it's the right one, but he wasn't saying anything direct, but that seemed to be, you know, kind of the the gist. And that seems kind of seedy and you can't, you know, you can't talk to senators when they're serving about, hey, I got the job lined up for you, you know, blah, 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 blah. But what also seemed to be there was him at least suggesting that he's not so settled on the filibuster, that this is not a done deal. And um, uh, for for various obvious reasons, that was not the kind of the main spin of the report. Um, some of that may be because of where it was published, whatever. But anyway, we are back to this, uh, the politics of opacity, that what's going on here? Are, are, are we, you know, are our eyes deceiving us? Do we not have enough hope against hope? You know, are we are we too cynical to think this is done? So that is uh, that is one of the things we're going to talk about. Now, before we do, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by and sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Grady's Cold Brew is here to help you cut through the heat this summer. Their famous New Orleans style coffee stays fresh in your fridge so you never have to wait in line, pay coffee shop prices or leave your air conditioning concentrated and strong it is strong grady's tastes great however you take it black and bold light and sweet or even spiked like an adult four loco oh okay even i got the i got the got the timing wrong and saying four loco. i know what four loco is i thought it was i thought i was going into like four seasons so what's, what's going on here so i got the got the got the phrasing a bit off and grady's is the best cold brew value around order a six pack of bean bags and you can get 72 servings of cold brew Shipped directly to your door for only forty-five bucks, and that then shipping's free. If you're ready to give it a try, give tw- get twenty-five percent off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, uh, co-host Kate, you know, before before I introduce you, did you see yourself in Politico? What do you mean? When it may have, I'm trying to think if it was this article and I don't know which article it was. I was, I was researching something yesterday, you know, probably relevant to this and the photo asset asset on the Politico article was, was, uh, Brian Schatz coming up the elevator and you with your microphone. Oh my God. I'm going to have to send that to And you've got like, you had your hair up like in a, like a, wait, maybe in a. 
Headband? Headband. I guess oh. not, a, not a handkerchief, but a headband yep. or something like that. Yeah. Yours truly. I was like, wait, that's Kate. Yeah. After I dashed in after uh, biking to the Capitol and there's this like gigantic hill because a lot of it is still fenced off after January mm-hmm. 6th. So I come in and I'm like uh, sweating and it was raining. So just all around damp and I have my helmet swinging from my backpack and I'm like, whacking all of our devoted lawmakers with it but uh yeah that but was that me. was that day that yeah was me, no yeah. i i was almost <laughs> i was almost gonna tweet it like like yo there's cape i was like all right that's a little much <laughs> um but we can but i can give you a shout out on the podcast oh my so gosh anyways, moment so, of fame so, yeah well it was probably i what was it i i can't remember i mean it i mean everything right now is about this basically right. and that picture right? was from yesterday so i assume oh okay yeah so it was even um uh, yeah. So, okay. Well, I, that actually was yesterday. Mm-hmm. That's uh, okay. Yep. Well, well, there you go. Yeah. That was, um, Senator Schatz was giving me a, a kind of, um, a lovely soliloquy about the dangers of despondency in these dark times at that moment. So that's a good, that's a good, I need that soliloquy. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah, man. So, okay. So what's the deal? What are we, what is, what is going on here? Do you have anything? Can you cut through my, my, my confused monologue to tell us what is happening here? Well, I mean, you're kind of left with two options. Uh, you know, Democrats are, which is hopelessness that, You know, earlier in the term, what we were talking about was the pressure campaign to get rid of the filibuster was going to crescendo with S1. You know, this was going to be kind of the final power play and that Schumer was going to bring all these other bills to the floor to kind of chip away at Manchin and Cinema's, you know, position and that it would come to a head on this bill that Democrats are marketing as, you know, the the safety guard against the, you know, the onslaught against democracy by all these GOP legislatures. And then last night, um, you know, the big drama was not whether Republicans would filibuster it or not. The drama was if Manchin would vote for the motion to proceed to debate and give Democrats a unified front against the filibuster. And it's funny because you know, as I was doing pre-writes and trying to figure out headlines, it's, it's kind of hard to squeeze all that in, in a way that doesn't sound super procedural and confusing because they weren't voting on the bill. They were voting on a debate on the bill, which also has its own term, which is invoking cloture. And, you know, kind of your to your point with the lingo, it's a little tricky. But basically, from the conversations I've had this week, people saw his yes vote as actually really important, even though it seems like who cares? The vote was going to fail either way. Because having Manchin be engaged on the policy and actually part of ongoing negotiations, you know, um, Senator Amy Klobuchar has been spearheading those negotiations. They've been working ever since he put out that memo of his voting proposals that he'd approve. Now, now when you say the negotiations, in this case, the negotiations to kind of bring the bill up to Manchin's standards or you're not talking about negotiations with Republicans here. No, no, no. Just with okay. Manchin to bring him into the fold. Right. Um, so, yeah. So what Senator Merkley said is kind of the next step now after the vote failed is that they're going to try to pretty quickly, I think, pull together something that, um, you know, that has Manchin's priorities in it. Um, and he kind of... Uh, He named, you know, he told reporters it'll center on the right to vote, ending gerrymandering, stopping billionaires from buying elections, stopping the corruption from conflicts of interest. So it seems like my kind of understanding of that is they're going to pick and choose pieces of S1 that has Manchin's buy-in, put together something smaller that has the guaranteed backing of 50 votes. And then we're going to kind of go through this again. You know, they're going to pull it together, have strong, unified Democratic support, see if... Manchin can pull in 10 Republicans, which, mm-hmm. you know, not a lot of suspense. We know that's not going to happen. And then what? You know, and that's kind of what I was getting at. That's what I was asking a lot of Democratic senators about yesterday, which is just what's the path forward on S1 from here? I mean, is it dead? Um, and they all said, you know, they were pretty candid about what's true, which is there has to be a reckoning with the rules. There's just there's simply no creative way around it with the filibuster in place. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter if you have Manchin and Cinema on board. Um, but I think the hope is the the optimistic hope is that now that Manchin 
is not just objecting to a voting bill on the basis of it not being bipartisan, but it has some policy buy-in and some things he supports and is actively working on crafting the language for this new bill that he's going to have personal buy-in because he is writing some of the legislation and that that will, I think, help contribute to the feeling of frustration when Republicans block, 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 won't even debate, won't even talk about it. Um, so, I mean, it's all it's all just part of the same long game we've been having all term, which is just the hope that something and something that Democrats feel is as necessary, critical, important as S1 or some version of S1 um, is what kind of finally nudges him into the arms of filibuster reform. Yeah, I mean, it... <sighs> As you say, that is the only kind of weak link in this chain. I mean, it has to be clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know, and and it's funny because we talk about this process that that you know this notional process that is he's gonna he's gonna try to bring over ten Republicans, and when that doesn't happen, blah blah. But I mean, like Joe Manchin is not brain dead, right? I mean, he he he. Whatever he is, in, unless he is truly out of touch with reality, he knows that he's not going to get 10 Republicans. So there is this whole kind of like, I don't know, play acting, you know, that, that this is going to slowly move him forward. Although, having said that, this was kind of my take too, that you know, he, and it's this funny thing, because you said before, Kate, rightly, that just because uh, cinema and mansion support this kind of who cares, that's only 50 votes. But even there, it kind of gets it like, what do we mean by support? Mm. Like they support the bill, but they don't support making sure you can vote on the bill. And, and these are kind of distinctions that, you know, most people are going to have a hard time grasping the significance or even even the even the meaning of that distinction. So clearly you like you support it but not quite enough to like make sure you can actually vote on it. And it certainly occurred it certainly made me think again in this whole kind of mental exercise that I think everybody makes everybody kind of wonder like am I being a chump here? Am I am I be, am I a chump? Am I being a chump? by even engaging this discussion. But it is hard to understand. So as we know, a couple weeks ago, Manchin, um, Manchin wrote this op-ed in uh, the, the big uh, Charleston, uh, West Virginia newspaper, basically saying, nope, I don't support S1. Done, done, and done. I don't support it. Sorry. And then he came up with this statement of kind of, here's what I can support. Can you support it? And all the Democrats are like, yes, we can definitely support that. Let's do it. And they get together and they put together this thing. And they're sort of like, what was the point of doing that? If if it's just to kind of have a little kind of symbolic kumbaya that you got 50 votes on your losing bill. Like, like it is a little hard to figure why you would why he would do that, why he would go to that, why he would have that exercise if there's no kind of end game there. And again, I, um, you know, the message I heard from, again, people who, people who are at the table, let's put it that way. I'm not saying kind of like, oh, the best, best prognosticator, just people who are at the table, at the real table. One of those people said to me kind of like, you know, Manchin is annoying and he drags all this stuff out. But so far, he is not, he's been there at the end on each of these things. Um, and so I think these people were kind of thinking with a lot more knowledge than I have, something similar, kind of what's the point in going through this exercise if he has really closed that, you know, closed that door and the, okay. it's weird it's just weird i know and it's the kind of thing where you know i think there's been criticism of democrats for doing this song and dance but my reaction to that has always been what do you want them to do you know they can tell them to go take a hike and then they guarantee there's no chance they're getting this legislation passed by kind of 
hanging in there with him and at least having these conversations, they're at least giving it a go that this kind of thing will convince him to change his mind down the road. You know, and I would say kind of the unified sentiment that I've gotten from lawmakers, people who work on the Hill and voting rights advocates who I've talked to in all since Manchin's memos come out, huge sense of relief that he put out those proposals that he's willing to engage on the policy. Because as one advocate put it to me, before this, we had nothing. We were nowhere. He, If he was taking off the table everything that didn't have bipartisan support, that's the end. You know, that's now in June of 2021, we know. Which is, which is literally everything doesn't have bipartisan support. Right, right. I mean, they make these kind of like, oh, like, you know, there was a while Murkowski was like, oh, voting rights act? Yeah. But like she was one of the 50 votes against yesterday. Or Well, she's saying she supports the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, but yeah, she did. Right, but I mean... It, on that procedural point of like not allowing this to be debated, she was there for that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's it is uh, well, and this is this is and this is a broader point just about politics in general, about um, about coalitional struggles within the Democratic Party, about Democratic Party morale. Is that you know, and if you're on Twitter, you see a lot of this, but but if you talk to political people, you see a lot of this, of people saying, oh, good going Democrats. Four months and here we are. You're trying to get a vote to debate your own bill. Good going. And man, I'm, I'm there with that. I mean, yes, good going. Like, what the fuck? What the fuck? What are we doing here? And yet there are two Democrats here that this is about. You have 48 Democrats who want this to pass, were ready to vote for it four months ago. And so this isn't the Democrats. This is the fact that Democrats have literally the slenderest majority possible, which is to say it's actually tied, but they have the vice president on their side. And they need these two people who make up their majority. And these two people tend are just very annoying people. <laughs> and and one of one of them has slightly more justification for being annoying, but that's just what it is. And so, you, and I, I'm always struck by the fact that you, it is really easy to demoralize yourself if you're like, oh, we all know this is the most important thing ever, and yet, good going. Mm -hmm. What's your problem? And you know, the Democrats, the establishment, the this, the that. When it's not that, it's these two people. And yet, and yet, if you come to election time and nothing has happened, it doesn't matter that it's those two people. People don't go to the people don't go to the ballot box or the kind of the relatively small number of people who are actually in play and say, like, I'm really frustrated, but it's really just Joe Manchin. Right. <laughs> That's the you know, and it's so it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. And and um I need to hear that uh, shot. I was about to say, talk. I was pulling it up so I can read it because it's only a few lines. And I think it's like, I, I don't You know. see the picture though, right? Yeah, I got to look Wait, at the picture. Yeah, but this yeah. is a quote that he was giving me during the picture. He was saying, you know, I asked him what's the path forward on S1, uh, given that Republicans will probably filibuster it. And he said, you know, obviously we have to huddle, but I would say that authoritarianism thrives in a context when the majority of people feel despondent and like there's no hope. So the one thing we can't do is give up hope. And that doesn't mean that if we fail today, there won't be disappointment, but there will never be despondency. We will regroup and plan anew and charge right back up the mountain. So I don't know, it's pretty good for an, an off the cuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that is, I have in very different contexts, I have said something that's supports that, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, optimism is an ethic. It's not just kind of like, you know, bean counting. And it really is true that, um, you know, morale is a big thing. And uh, demoralization can be contagious and it's poisonous. Yeah. I mean, at least because 2022, I mean, the whole ballgame is going to be Democrats fighting against ingrained difficulties that are is going to make it harder between you know redistricting and and the usual cycle of these things. So the idea of Republic of Democrats being demoralized and dampened and not turning out is pretty much 
the worst possible outcome for anybody who's so pissed off that Manchin is standing in the way of this, you know, what would be a progressive legislative agenda. Yeah, yeah, no, and that and that is that is absolutely the case, and 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 that is why, as frustrating as this is, and as much as it is the case that this may not work, it is really important for everyone who is focused on this and knows the details, not to say to themselves or to their you know to their individual publics. Like, oh, so feckless, can't get it done. You know, we wouldn't be here if if the Democrats had had a if if and even even there, if Democratic voters had done a bit better in a few states, and suddenly you're talking about like a 53 seat majority, in which case you're in a totally different ballpark. So it is uh there is a great moral imperative when you are struggling for important things not to demoralize yourself. And that's, that's just a fact. I love this optimistic note, but to get back into demoralization, we probably yes. should mention quickly uh, the cinema op-ed that came out Monday night. Right, right, right. Well, you know, here, here's the thing, though. I, I, I actually, I'm not worried about her mm. because I think she's a fraud. I think Joe Manchin gets on board with any kind of revision of the filibuster and she'll be there. I'm really confident about that because again, I think she's a fraud. She is, this is positioning for her and, and you can say it's positioning for Manchin too, but it's positioning with a lot more, a lot more meat behind it. Right. Um, and so I'm actually not worried about that. I mean, like, I, you know, sort of like <laughs> we're already kind of like, uh, you know, having very aspirational, you know, reasoning. So I've kind of like opened up a path for Mansion. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll deal with cinema when we get there. Right. You know? One, one point. Let me make though here, and this goes both to what you said about twenty 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 two and about this, um, about H one S one. There's various things that, for whatever reason, and it's not clear to me in every case just what his thinking was on e you know on e on each front. Um, of Mansion saying, "Oh, I can't do this. Can't do that." Blah 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 blah. The one thing he didn't pull the plug on, as far as I can understand, is the gerrymandering stuff. And to me, that is actually the most important part of the whole bill. He held on to at least a decent amount of the campaign finance stuff. In relative terms, I don't really care about that stuff. And now, I'm not saying it's not important. I don't think it is anywhere near as important as the other things. I think, well... Just set that aside. Then there's the va then then there's the various voting access things. Those are very important, but they're not all equally important. But the gerrymandering thing that is, if you can get that, that is a big deal, a big big deal. And and that doesn't mean that you're never going to have like a you know kind of stacked decks that that it it it, do, it doesn't mean that that there will never be any partisan advantage used in in um, drawing maps. But it will put some limit on it, and that is a big deal. So, in in that, in that sense, uh, if you hear that Mansion has watered down the bill, which he absolutely has, at least by my reckoning, he has left what to me is the most important part of the bill pretty untouched. Yeah, there's one uh, one thing I wanted to say about the cinema op-ed that. A lot of her arguments were pretty silly in there, but one of them, which we have discussed a bit on the show, was that if they nix the filibuster now, essentially they're going to pay for it when the Republicans are back in the majority and pass what kind of boils down to a raft of super unpopular legislation that Democrats will also hate along with a lot of other people. But um, I was uh, talking to Senator Warren yesterday and I thought she just kind of dismissed that argument in a very um, effective way. She said, if Mitch McConnell believes that he will get even the tiniest advantage from remo removing the filibuster in the future, he will do it regardless of what Democrats have done in the past. I just think that that just nails, you know, yeah. hits a nail on the head there. And it's so, it's so obvious if you, if you have, if you have been watching the last 20 years of American political history, that is so obvious, so certain there's almost nothing to say about it. The, you know, the one other point I would make about this is that um, 
there's we we've talked about this before. The filibuster uniquely hurts Democrats. Mm-hmm. What do Republicans want? They want judges. They want tax cuts. You can do both with fifty votes. You don't filibuster doesn't matter. Now a lot of people say, well, you know, you're going to have like you know a national abortion ban or something. You know, maybe depending what the court does, maybe you can't have a ban, but you know, something like it, something like that, or other things that. Uh, progressives would hate. A, there's something to be said for majority rule, even if you hate the consequences of it. That is our system. Majority should govern. But even within that, there's a reason why Republicans have not passed national abortion legislation, except occasionally when they try to do these, these you know, kind of marginal things about, you know, no... Um, you know, no abortions in the final week of a pregnancy, stuff like that, that, that obviously positions it in a way that they can kind of get majority support. That's because that's super unpopular and they don't want to do that. There's no way they're, they're just never going to do that. Now, in theory, maybe they could sort of like just say, okay, we're, we're, we're unpassing the For the People Act. Maybe. Um, but the, the whole, the whole, this whole, this whole idea of ricocheting stuff which is which is supposedly the one good explanation for what you know th- this is now the good the good filibuster argument is just absurd on a few fronts w- not least of which is that's democracy yes if you have if you are closely divided and you actually swing back and forth of unified control yes you could have that happen you don't swing back and forth that much unified control got the presidency and mm-hmm. all the congress that right. doesn't happen very often and in fact this re- in 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 effect, this ricocheting has really not happened. Take Obamacare. You know, that was they're gonna unpass it, they're gonna repeal it, blah, blah, blah. They weren't able, they were not able to do it. And that's sort of like the ultimate example. So it has so A, on in principle, it's not a good argument. Again, because that's democracy. Majorities should govern. Yes, we have we have um we have various things about the American constitutional system, which makes it a little, you know, there's always some roadblocks in, in, the, in the way of, of the majority in the most recent election. You got the president, you got the House, you got the Senate. But basically, majority should govern. We should stick to that. Um, and in practice, we've, this ricocheting has not happened. Yeah, this reminds me a lot of, um, I was up at the Hill right after Amy Coney Barrett got confirmed and I was asking Republicans basically what the game plan was now that they have such a slanted conservative Supreme Court bench and the threat to the ACA has become existential. Um, And really nobody wanted to talk about it. No one wanted to engage. You know, obviously it's not like Republicans had a secret backup health care plan for if the Supreme Court did gut the ACA, you know, which that decision just came down, what, last week, I think, that they didn't. But it's, it's the same premise as this whole thing. The idea that if Republicans are just given the opportunity to do these things they've railed against for years, they'll do it. It's just not true because throwing tens of millions of people off their health care would destroy them electorally. So it's one thing to say, worst law ever, hate it, spend all my life fighting it. It's quite another to actually do it. Yeah. And, and, and again, the, this is what diehard pro-life types, or if you want to say anti-abortion rights types, um, their beef with the Republican Party, which is an accurate beef with the Republican Party, the establishment of the Republican Party, is that Republicans have used it for years to raise money, to elect candidates, to do stuff at the state level, but they've never been willing to do stuff at the national level. Why? Because abortion is something that a majority of the country is has discomfort about, depending on which majority you're talking about, but a majority supports it at a baseline. And of course, they just never, they, they want to use it, they don't want to actually kind of bite that bullet, so to speak, at the, you know, in national legislation, because it's super unpopular. Yeah. And they know that. So if you're worrying about on the abortion rights front, in terms of national legislation, I'm pretty, I can almost assure you nothing is going to ever happen on that front, because the Republicans don't want it to happen. Um, And again, on the, on the, on the sort of the level of principle, again, majorities, we, we should, we should, 
We should put a lot of stock in that. That's our system. Yeah. So we should touch on this before we move on to questions. Um, but a criticism that kind of arose around S1 and the failure of S1 is that Biden didn't do enough, that he didn't use his bully pulpit enough to hammer the issue. You know, he wasn't touring the country talking about it. Um, you know, basically that he just didn't use the clout of the presidency enough to enhance how important this was. Um, so my thought on this is that I do think you can gauge by his actions where he thought the likelihood of legislation actually passing is, you know, this past week, including yesterday, the day of the big vote, you know, his team was on the Hill talking infrastructure. Uh, Lisa Murkowski gave a speech on the floor of the Senate about how she wasn't going to vote for S1. And then she went into and met with Kamala Harris and they talked about infrastructure, you know? So I do think by his actions, you can tell that he is being a bit pragmatic with what he thinks actually has a chance of passing right now, which is clearly infrastructure. Um, but I guess the question I always have about this is what, what do those critics think he could do? You know, is it that he should be kind of like calling out Manchin and Cinnabon by name? I think that almost helps Manchin's kind of bipartisan bona fides more than anything. And all the conversations I've had with people on the Hill are kind of permeated with this sense of delicacy about dealing with Manchin. Like they're trying to be careful. They're not trying to piss him off. And yeah. to be fair, I do think Biden has spoke about voting rights in very existential terms. And, and a lot. Yeah. A lot. Um, I, I mean, I take the point. I mean, he could be, I mean, I think, um, I think people overstate the power that a president, a, a modern president has with someone who, um, with a senator from a state that, they, that they're not popular in. Right. Mm -hmm. And and it's not that Biden's not popular. It's just a super Republican state at this point. So it's not like we uh, people uh, bring up. I can't remember the guy's name. This the uh, Republican senator from Nevada who lost in 2018. His name starts with H, I think. I can't remember. Uh, he went down to defeat. And and I think it was during maybe it was during the Obamacare stuff, you know, Obamacare repeal. Trump said to him a few times, look, oh, I know Nevada. Don't cross <laughs> me, man. Now, in, in that now, whether or not that had anything to do with anything. Uh, that senator, whose name I'm, I'm, is escaping me, was in a very marginal position. He eventually lost re-election. Um, and in that case, when you're that on the line, having the, you know, having the, 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 you're the president of your party kind of negging you is, is that's bad, right? Because you need every member of your party on board, but that's not the case with Manchin. So I just don't think there's that much that, and and he's not up for an election in until uh, 2024. So it's all, and I think same with cinema. Yeah. So they're not even up for a re-election. So it's all kind of moot. Um, I, I think the one thing a president can do is, you know, make. I don't think it's a matter of pressuring. I think that is kind of that is um, that's kind of outdated thinking. It has to do with a period when parties were stronger, where the president could basically implicitly say, look, I'm going to cut off your money and then you're hosed. So you better do what I want. Um, that's not really in our kind of media saturated environment. That's, that's not really how it works anymore. But what a president can do is kind of, you know, sloganize something, you know, S1 for the people act, blah, 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 blah. You know, Biden could be out there saying, look, Trump tried to overthrow an election. You know, our our ability to have elections is really on the line. This is absolutely essential. That could sort of, you know, kind of um, focus people's attention. Um, but it's also easy to over, you know, to overstate what a president, what a president can do. And also kind of what is, it, it's very clear, there's nothing that's going to make Republicans allow a vote on this. I don't care how clear Biden makes it. This is really about mansion and cinema, and, and that's not you know it's not necessarily the it's not necessarily something he can do as a sort of a public campaign. Yeah, I mean, and I also am not taking off the table the idea that he will come to Mansion at some point in this term and be like, "Look, I'm 
your president is asking you to deliver here. You know, I don't think that that it doesn't seem that that's happened yet. And I think in some ways it doesn't make a ton of sense for it to happen yet because there's still infrastructure, you know, there's still kind of room to legislate, but after infrastructure is done, when that reconciliation vehicle is gone, I mean, that's it. There's almost nothing else to do with the filibuster in place. So I don't know if he's going to time some kind of personal appeal, which may work because I do think Manchin likes Biden and wants him to have mm-hmm. a successful presidency. I think you got to be pretty delicate with your timing there. Well, I also think, I mean, there's, you know, these are very different. These are wildly different things. The democracy bill and the infrastructure bill. What we're talking about with the infrastructure bill is, you know, it's not just infrastructure. It's a huge sort of, um, it, it's a huge amount of, of, of social safety net legislation with what they, you know, they're now calling the caring economy, infrastructure, blah, 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 blah. A huge, 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 huge in spending, huge in impact, blah, 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 blah. It is a huge climate legislation. A big amount of the infrastructure is, is, is climate, you know, uh, uh, climate stuff. And so that is something that is potentially transformative regardless of what happens in 2022. You know, there's one way of looking at this, which is to say, um, you know, maybe 2022 is, uh, you know, is, is done, is, you know, is hopeless, is, not, is, is never going to happen. Um, and if that's the case, you need to do as much as you can now. And, and, and just you've written it off. And, and the infrastructure may be like that. Um, so anyway, one way of looking at it. Yeah. All right. Let's get to our questions. We're running a bit low on time. So our first is from Reed. He said, I've been wondering why Congress tries to pass everything as an omnibus bill like H.R. 1 or S. 1 or For the People Act and why it can't be broken down into several smaller bills if it faces opposition. I know that large bills let you hide smaller, less popular laws within them, but I think there would be benefits to smaller bills, even if you don't get the big kahuna. Um, good question. Uh, I think I think there's a couple answers. One is that, as we're always hearing, there's like you know limited time in the Senate schedule, so you don't want to kind of chop things up into twenty different bills. Um, but the other thing is, is that most bills are designed. Um, to include various things that bring together different constituencies. So bundling things together can at least arguably make them easier to pass. Um, so I think those are the those are the two reasons. I mean, sometimes usually when you break them apart, you're doing it to uh, you know, to create to create messaging votes. Usually it's when you know they're gonna lose and you're just trying to get people, you force people to vote against them. Um but I think I think that's the answer. It's one it's one of these many things that um, when people ask me that, I kind of know that there are these kind of procedural realities that no one really understands. That's why it's the case. But I don't really co- completely understand them either. But I think that's <laughs> that's about as close as I can close as I can get to explaining it. Yeah, I mean there there are two dynamics, right? Because if you're looking at reconciliation, the reason these bills are gigantic is because they only have a couple bites at the apple. So they're trying to bundle in everything possible uh, that only needs a simple majority. You know, what what Bernie Sanders is working on right now is the reconciliation package is, you know, like $6 trillion and includes tons of different stuff. You know, he's trying to get immigration reform in it and everything. And to some degree, it just, that speaks to the brokenness of our system. You can't pass anything regular order. So it's your only option. Isn't, isn't there, you know, one person mentioned to me that, that, uh, if they're trying to to put all this stuff into reconciliation, you're going to have that same thing again with the um, with the parliamentarian coming in and saying like, nope, nope, right. nope, nope. So I I don't know if and and probably something. I mean, anything to do with um, immigration is uh, th- that's really not what it's for. But you're probably also going to have things that um, uh, you know that are closer calls that will get you know will get knocked out too. Yeah, though, on that front, I am all for the try to stuff in everything you possibly can, right? I mean, what's the worst? Yeah, I mean, why She'll not? She'll say yeah. no. Yeah, it, why Otherwise, not? it's definitely not happening. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a good point. It's yeah, good point. but I think also there is a bit of a myth that, that 
Republicans will be willing to cooperate if only the bills are smaller and less sprawling. And that a lot of times they, that's how they frame their opposition. Like they don't like S1 because it's too big, um, too expensive. But the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is pretty narrow. Pretty much all it seeks to do is replace the part of the VRA, the Voting Rights Act, that the Supreme Court gutted in 2013. And as we mentioned earlier, it currently has all of one Republican co-sponsor. So, And that's Murkowski, right? It's Murkowski. And she's actually co-sponsor? I wasn't sure if she was maybe a little more vague. She reaffirmed her support on the floor yesterday okay. again. Um, so I you know, kind of look at the bipartisan infrastructure bill they're trying to hammer out right now. That's sm- much smaller than Biden's proposal, um, you know, seemingly has has stuff to bring Republicans to the table. And it still is pretty tenuous, seems it could fall apart at any day. So I do think the idea that smaller bills are richer, riper for bipartisan cooperation is not quite true. Right, um, which right, is also kind right. of a good argument for just putting everything you want in there yeah. and not going through these negotiations every single time. Yep. Okay. And then our second question is from Luby. Uh, to what degree do you feel the collective media's role in covering the governing process often does more harm than good? Um, and I, I think again, a little bit the premise of this question, which I, you know, I totally understand it. And I do agree. I mean, the media focuses on conflict, right? Because I think that's where, most people's journalistic philosophy feels that that's where the news is the most help to uncover the, you know, the unscrupulous or the broken things to explain dysfunction to people. Um, and, you know, there's also the the less noble piece of it, which is that pretty much all media is is run by people wanting to read and wanting to click and people are attracted to conflict and debate. That's just how it is. But I also think the idea that if only the cameras were off, things would be different, just kind of is not how the Republican Party is. Because on the world stage, our Republican Party is just, it's one of the most conservative, one of the most extreme right-wing parties and has made their name, especially in this last decade, off of obstruction, off of trying to undermine the Democratic president to get back in power as quickly as possible. And I just, I don't, I really don't think that if you take the cameras off, they're suddenly going to realize, oh, there is a lot of common ground we have in, you know, immigration, healthcare, policing, whatever. Because I think that delivering a Democratic president a win is a huge disincentive for them to do anything, for most of them to want to do anything. Yeah, I I think basically that's right. I mean, there are ways that media coverage can deepen some of these tendencies. Yep. Um, but I, I don't think that is, that, that's not the heart of it or even very much of it, I think. And, and you know, it, it kind of to your point about it being one of the most, you know, uh, uh, conservative or extreme parties in, in, in sort of, um, you know, what we used to call the Western world, you know, Western Europe, United States, Canada, blah, 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 blah. In many ways, um, uh, you know the uh, the Conservative Party in France is sort of seems to be making a bit of a comeback now, um, and in many ways, in every in every country in Western Europe, basically every kind of you know quote unquote Western democracy, you have a center right and a center left party of government, and they have different names, but it's pretty much the same thing. And in most of those countries, especially on, in continental Europe, you often have. Um, you know, rightist, sectarian, revanchist parties. So in France, you've got the Conservative Party, who they're the Gaullists. I can't remember. There's called like Rally for the Republic or something. Um, and then you have the National Front. And again, you've got, you got versions of this in most in most countries. And in many ways, what has happened is that the Republican Party now is functionally like one of those, you know, revanchist, right-wing sectarian parties and not really a, a a party of government. Um, and that's really, it's not even a matter of that they're more extreme. It's just, they're a different thing. They function differently. Um, and that, that kind of characterizes all of our, all of our politics at the moment. But I, Kate and I agree on this basic point. I think media coverage can be an accelerant, but it's not, it's not the driver. And I don't think it has a, I don't think it has a big, a, a big role. Yeah. All right. And I guess that's a wrap. So should we remind everybody about the contest? We should indeed. We're yeah. having our uh, 
We're trying to get a snazzy new upgrade to our podcast theme song. Uh, we're taking submissions. Um, I, our cap is two minutes long. You know, we're looking for reasonably professional audio level. Uh, we will pay for the winning submission. And before, I think we said uh, end of June was going to be the deadline, but realized, you know, we hadn't put it on the website, which we're going to do. So I think we're going to be a little loosey-goosey with that. Yeah, we're going to kick it out to sometime in, in July, but we'll we'll probably on the site, we'll announce the new deadline. Yeah. Um, but again, this isn't, this is just because, you know, we realize that we haven't really announced the contest to a lot of, uh, a lot of our, you know, readers, if not necessarily listeners to the podcast itself. And, um, and yeah, this is going to be, you know, we want, we, you know, I think we like our current, uh, a theme song, but it's not, it's not unique to us. It's, it's one of those kind of, you know, kind of, uh, the, the sort of the audio equivalent of like clip art, right. And <laughs> you can buy access to it and use it. And so we want something unique to us. Um, and, uh, Kate just, just gave you the, the basic parameters. Uh, we will, we will, uh, pay for the, for the winner and it's a fun thing. And it, you know, I mentioned, uh, I mentioned in an earlier episode that, you know, our current our current theme song has a kind of a strong baseline to it. And I, I like that. I, and it doesn't, that's kind of, um, that's pretty generic, but, uh, uh, you know, something that has that kind of strong baseline, I kind of like in general, but, but I, as, as is often the case, uh, you, usually I don't know what I'm going to like until I hear it. Right. <laughs> so, so if you, if you have a different idea, that's great. Um, we want to have as many, you know, as many entrants as possible and, and, you know, kind of let your creativity go wild and, and, and send in your submissions. And again, we're, we're going to put, um, we're going to put an updated, uh, announcement on the website, new deadline and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that'll be, That'll be cool. Yeah. And thank you to everyone who submitted so far. Really excited to listen to all of them. And then as usual, if you are not musically inclined, you can still send us in a question. We need those yeah. and love those too. So both yeah, of those things sending them in. to talk at talkingpointsmemo.com. Yeah. And reminder, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your first order at gradyscoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. See you next Later. week. Later. All right.